Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This week, I speak to Jennifer Ziegel, a trust and estate practitioner, member of STEPS Digital Asset Special Interest Group Steering Committee, an attorney at Kleinbard LLC, author of Digital Asset Entanglement, Unraveling the Intersection of Estate Laws and Technology, and creator and host of the Digital Planning Podcast. We speak about digital assets beyond merely crypto and the role STEP is playing to educate and drive policy worldwide, how they do it, and what the market looks like as the technology continues to be vital infrastructure. Jen, welcome. Matt, thank you so much for inviting me on your program. No, no problem at all. Um, I understand that you're a lawyer or an attorney at, uh, at Kleinbard, an outfit in, in the US. Um, and whilst I want to talk about your practice, I think I'd like to learn more about STEP um, at this early stage. So in a nutshell, what is STEP? So STEP is an acronym for the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, and it's a global professional body for inheritance advisors. And it mainly consists of attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, insurance professionals, and other practitioners who assist families in the estate planning and estate administration process. Okay. So in that respect, what broadly does STEP, what problem does it look to overcome? So it's really looking to serve as a resource and also inspire confidence in families planning for assets across generations. And it does this, you know, in in multiple ways by setting and upholding, you know, very high professional standards for educational materials, informing public policy or commenting on proposed legislation, promoting education, and of course, connecting practitioners globally to share their knowledge and expertise. Right. So the idea is, is if, if somebody's in that industry, then they would look to step to sort of help them or guide them through processes as a way to ensure quality, possibly, uh, as you say, as an education tool. It's just sort of a body to sort of look after and enhance those in the wealth planning world. Is that right? Yes. And I think it's also been a great resource for practitioners to find other like-minded individuals in other jurisdictions, you know, where they have client issues that may arise that that they they don't have uh, the requisite licenses or capabilities of handling. So it's a great referral network too. Ah, so if you're a you're a member, aren't you? You have to be a member of of Step. Yes, and there's different levels of membership. Uh, the highest level is a, a designation of TEP, Trusted Estate Practitioner, um, and I have that designation. Okay, nice, and it means that you can confidently refer work or seek advice from others in that in that network. Yes, and that you've also achieved uh, a certain amount of expertise in your practice or have been in practice for a requisite period of time. Or for those who are uh, a little younger in their careers, there's a test that they can take to qualify uh, for this designation. And is that step drawn up or is that a, a qualification yes. outside? Of, okay. That's step created. So then... Where is Step based? Because it seems like a, a global organization. Does it have a headquarters? Yes, its headquarters is in London, and I believe there's around twenty-one thousand members uh, globally in around a hundred countries. Okay, so its members are across the world, and they're predominantly in London. I mean, is this a London-based initiative? 
there is a, a heavy uh, focus and a lot of activity in the UK, but it is a global organization. Okay. Um, well, that's that's helpful to, to at least speak to somebody who's not part of, of the London um, sort of center, because we'll get hopefully a, a wider outlook than just some of my friends in London would provide. So that's great. Um, so tell me about Steps Digital Assets Special Interest Group, because when you hear wealth management and you hear about sort of planning, you don't normally consider digital assets, which is seen as cutting edge or cryptocurrencies or anything that sort of falls under that terminology to be relevant to wealth planning. So how is this interest group assisting STEP? So the digital assets SIG consists of STEP members and also non-members can join and be a part of it uh, who are really interested in learning more about the digital asset planning space, which is a new uh, emerging category for estate planning uh, that really also can really touch across industries. And the SIG also has a website that has a wealth of information for general guidance, uh, some tools that advisors can use, some tools that uh, you know the general public can use to help begin to become aware of the need to plan in this area and to get the process started. And within the SIG, there is a steering group and that is a committee of individuals who have been elected to serve. Um, they have to be step members, and they're elected for a two-year term. I, I am on the steering committee, and I'm actually in my second term. And the steering committee really drives creating educational materials and webinars, um, as well as commenting on proposed legislation in this space, and also creating planning tools and guides in this area. And one of the initiatives of the the SIGS steering committee this year was the implementation of the digital legacy scorecard. Now, this is a tool that was originally created by the late Sharon Hartung and was expanded upon under a license uh, granted to STEP. And the scorecard is really a tool to rate death and incapacity planning provisions in popular service provider terms of service agreements. So think Google, Meta, Apple. And so that's been unveiled, and we did an article about that in, in the STEP journal to really help raise awareness and also to allow for advisors to key in to some of the planning issues based on different terms of service agreements for these service providers or options that they may have in their platform. So it's almost like you're planning for the, planning for the future of wealth planning. Yes. That's why this is here. Yes. I think it's, it's enormously important because when I, certainly when I sit down and do these podcasts, one of the main things that people talk about is more education. And when you think about the world of estate planning and family wealth planning, you would sort of leave out digital assets. So I think it's important that that space considers these new types of assets and the ways in which they interact with normal wealth planning. Now, visiting the, the STEP website, there is a digital assets hub which notes, and I quote, with digital assets having become a common part of modern estate planning and estate administration, demand for advice is expected to increase significantly. So are we seeing a real influx legitimately in this? Or is this sort of preemptive? Is this, a, is this something that we're planning for or is it reactionary? There is a great need for advisors to help their clients now in this planning space. And for the last 10 years, you know, our physical lives and our digital lives have become a lot more intertwined. And this was even more amplified, you know, because of the COVID pandemic 
and we were forced, you know, as as a society to turn to digital platforms for work, for household management, for recreation, for social connections. And that really heightened the need to plan in this area. Um, most people have a lot more digital interests and accounts than they even realize. I mean, the average person has dozens and dozens of online accounts, and this is only going to increase. Um, many people use electronic bill pay for managing their households and finances. And previously, when a person passed, you know, you would monitor the mailbox, and after a few months, you would have a really great picture of assets, liabilities, you know, where the utility counts are located, all of that information. But now that so many people are paperless, the new mailbox is is the email account. And a lot of people can have various email accounts. And accessing email accounts after death is is not always a user-friendly or easy process. So if there haven't been pre-planning measures, getting access to some of that important information that could be necessary for a state administration or could be necessary to prevent any type of loss in, in the digital assets and interests um, is vital. Some digital assets have a monetary value, you know, like Bitcoin or even a PayPal or Venmo account or airline miles that are transferable. But others have sentimental value, you know, the photos and videos in a cloud or um, social media posts. And even other digital assets might not have sentimental or monetary value, but they have personal information, you know, tied to the account or a credit card could be tied to the account. So if these interests are not identified and shut down, you know, there's also a real increased risk of cybersecurity issues and identity theft. So it's vital, you know, now um, and as we go forward into the future to really plan for these assets and what we want to happen in, if somebody becomes suddenly incapacitated or, or upon their death. Yeah, I think that's a really nice answer because, and we'll come to this because there was there was a paper that I saw on the STEP website that dealt with it, but it seems as though there is a real overlap between uh, data and the use of data and sort of more, I suppose, what would be classed as assets at law. Certainly in this jurisdiction, there are debates as to how to treat data as, as anything proprietary or not, or whether you have specific rights over data. And that would probably be different to how you treat access to certain services and what kinds of digital assets you may have. So that article, it says, digital assets explained. Step has produced a series of short video clips that explain some of the key terminology relating to digital assets. We produced these clips in response to findings of Step's digital assets research report. Um, and I'm glad to see that uh, a fellow author, mine, Sarah Johnson, um, who's helped organize this podcast, is the expert in the first video, which is awesome. Um, so who is that hub aimed for and why go to the effort to making the special interest group and providing those videos? Uh, so first, Sarah Johnson is phenomenal. Um, she is a key member of the STEP steering committee and she is a, a guru in the digital asset space. Um, and I think her explainer videos did a really great job of making complex uh, concepts, you know, very digestible and accessible. Um, the hub is really aimed at practitioners within interest in digital assets to begin to help prime them and educate them on the various topics that, you know, fall under this umbrella. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is that the explainer videos uh, have been watched by nearly 7,000 people, which is fantastic. Well, I mean, 
Sarah's super engaging because she has a wealth of knowledge. I'm not really surprised that she's done your videos, to be honest with you. Um, so apart from Sarah, who else is in Digital Assets Group? I mean, there's, there's lawyers in there. Who else makes up that group and, and what role do they play? In the steering committee? Yeah. So we have accountants, we have lawyers, we have technologists. Um, we have other financial advisors uh, that all work together and form little subcommittees within the committee to help you know get things done like these explainer videos and the digital asset scorecard. Nice. I was going to say, if it's too many lawyers, it's just uh, that that wouldn't work. You need a variety of different people. Otherwise, that'd be a nightmare. Um, so I, there is a step call to action paper also on the website, um, which starts step and the Microsoft funded cloud legal project at Queen Mary University of London have collaborated on a joint research project into estate practitioner views on and experiences with digital assets. The aim is to understand the extent to which practitioners deal with digital assets the risks and challenges posed by digital assets to estate planning and administration, and the measures practitioners are taking to assist clients with digital assets. Why was this report made then? And what broadly were your findings? So the report was created to really identify the need for planning in this area and to better understand the problems advisors were faced with in planning for and the administration of digital assets. And some of the key findings of the report were that digital assets have become a common part of modern estate planning and estate administration. And it's expected that demand for this type of advice is only going to increase, especially as technology develops. Um, the report also showed that clients are frequently experiencing difficulties in accessing a loved one's digital assets and accounts because the, the decedent wasn't aware of the need to plan for assets in this space. And so it's becoming uh, a cause of distress and frustration. Um, the report also identified that third-party service providers uh, can also present a different uh, layer of complications in accessing, and act, uh, in accessing digital assets because they have different procedures and there's legal and jurisdictional obstacles with accessing a person's digital assets. Um, there's a wide variety of policies and there's a real need for law reform, you know, across jurisdictions to uh, allow and enable effective estate planning in estate administration for digital so, assets. So in that respect, then this report was reactive to how people in the real world were feeling about digital assets broadly and how wealth planning and management were being dealt with at the time. It's it's reactionary to some extent, right? Yes. And I guess it was a matter of, and I guess you're you're at the the sort of cold face of it, whereby people are coming to you, dealing, looking to have uh, a professional deal with their their estate, and they're saying that the, these are the real problems. And I suppose you were a voice piece along with others to be able to amalgamate those ideas and via step understand what the issues were for this report to be made. Yes. So the report was created based off of a survey of STEP members uh, globally mm. in connection with their personal practices and having the need to access or handle digital assets uh, in an estate administration. Because one of the really interesting things here is the definition of digital assets. When we talk about digital assets broadly, People think of cryptocurrencies and NFTs, and I say that. Well, I say that because in my world, that's what it's become. People used to talk about 
cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, and there was confusion about whether Bitcoin was a cryptocurrency or not, which is sort of to some extent academic. And then certainly the legal industry started using this digital assets phrase. Um, who knows what the next phrase is? But when I when I read your papers, it was interesting to see that digital asset wasn't just inclusive of things that live in my world, so cryptocurrencies and, and NFTs and things like that. But it says, and I quote, it says, a digital asset within is any object that has monetary or sentimental value and exists only in electronic form, such as a digital photograph, an email account, an internet domain name, a video game item, or a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. So to my mind, there's a very heavy data angle in this as well. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. And I want to point out that, that digital assets is really not that user-friendly of a term. I mean, it's really not. It's not. It's not. I mean, what does it even really mean? Um, because when I say it to most clients, initially, they look at me like I have two heads. And, you know, the meaning and the definition of digital assets can also change based on the authority being consulted. Um, so there's no real uniform definition. Uh, my area of expertise is in the United States and in the laws uh, regarding digital assets there. So I can't really comment on other jurisdictional definitions, but in the United States, most states have adopted a version of the model legislation um, called the Revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act. And that is a mouthful. So it's kind of catchy. I was going to say, yeah. super catchy. <laughs> super catchy. <laughs> um, it, it goes by Rufada. So the definition of digital assets under Rufada is an electronic record in which an individual has a right or an interest. And that definition does not include any underlying asset or liability unless that asset or liability itself is in an electronic record. Um, Rufada, in addition to serving as a, a working definition for digital assets, also sets forth a hierarchy of when a fiduciary, so when I say that term, I'm talking about an agent under a power of attorney or an executor of an estate or a trustee of a trust, that hierarchy for the fiduciary to access a user's digital assets. And that hierarchy sets forth an online tool as um, the first method of access. So that's if a platform has you know that feature. And if that isn't available or unutilized, then estate planning documents are controlling if there is specific authorizations to access digital assets there. And then if if the state planning documents are non-existent or they're silent as to that uh, authority, then the terms of service agreement for a service provider can control. I mean, digital assets are not smartphones or computers or tablets. Digital assets are all of the pieces of information and the data that are stored on devices, which also include digitally stored content, online accounts, external hard drives. Yeah, and, and I think this is the interesting thing in this jurisdiction is is the way that data is treated. I mean, a number of years ago, we had the GDPR, which set out a number of ways in which people can control their data or have rights over their data. So you have a right to be forgotten, for example. Um, but whether there is a proprietary right in specific data, to my mind at least, I may well be wrong, is less certain. There is a proprietary right over certain crypto assets or in certain digital assets. You may get um, a proprietary right over a photograph that you have on your computer that you took on a phone 10 years ago. But whether there is a specific proprietary right over data, 
um, is something that I certainly am a little bit unclear about. So it may be worth um, in this special interest group or, 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 or broadly to be able to educate on what that means or what that looks like. I mean, it, it just seems to me that there is a non-uniformity in how we treat things that are digital. I'm going to keep the language that vague, things that are digital. Um, because it also includes things like passwords and 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 metadata, so I, I understand that it is it's it's really tricky to try and get to grips with what digital assets may be. But just just to move on a little bit, I mean, what are the proposed solutions in dealing with digital assets for estate planning? So classic lawyer answer: It depends. It depends. There you depends. go. <laughs> planning in this space is not a one size fits all approach. Um, which makes the advisor's job even more difficult. Not everyone's digital behavior is the same, nor are there wishes for a disposition of digital assets and interests, you know, in the event of incapacity or death. And of course, you know, many digital assets that are controlled by service providers, you know, you have another layer of uh, a contract that, that the user has uh, agreed upon that could uh, be controlling. And in many situations, terms of service agreements don't even deal with incapacity or death provisions. So there's no uniform treatment, you know, in, in that regard. And then, of course, if there are planning options, you know, I mentioned uh, earlier through a service provider's platform, you know, that could include directives on whether an account should be deleted or if certain information should be uh, transferred over to identified uh, individuals. But some digital assets may not even be transferable at all if the user only had a lifetime license. And of course, you know, as we talked about, on top of all of those issues, there's no jurisdictional uniformity in regarding uh, an executor or uh, an agent under power of attorney's access to, to these types of digital assets in the event of incapacity or death. And they're borderless in some ways. Digital assets can be looked at and regarded as borderless. Um, so. To make things even more challenging and to make the digital asset planning party even more fun, uh, it's important to note that certain digital accounts are actually controlled by the jurisdiction of the service provider, and this is in their terms of service agreements. So for instance, Google accounts are controlled under California's law uh, because Google is headquartered in California. So. A user, regardless of where they are located, if they're using a Gmail account, could be subject to California law and the California version of Rufada. Um, many people are quite surprised, especially if they're outside the United States, to discover this fun fact. Huh. But it, it does sound weird because if you, if I'm in England and I have, say, for instance, I I, I die tomorrow, and my I would I would have thought that the rights in the photos that I have that maybe are stored on my Google Drive would be dictated by English law. But you're telling me that's not the case. Or maybe it's partly the case. I mean, it's not an easy thing to, to, to sort of unscramble, is it? No, it's not. So Google is one of the service providers that does have an online tool. It's hey. called the Inactive Account Manager. And this is only for their individual accounts, not their enterprise accounts. Right. And through the Inactive Account Manager, a user can set uh, a number of individuals to receive information in their account, and they can cherry pick what information they would want. So they could send emails, they could have their Google Drive, they could have Gchat, the calendar, or they could direct through this inactive account manager that the information is deleted. And the 
tool functions by a period of inactivity that the user sets. So it can be, I think, from three months to maybe up to 18 months, hey. uh, last time I looked. And if an account is inactive for that pre-designated period, then at the end of that uh, period, the information will be transferred, you know, if, if that was the directive given or it'll be deleted, or if no tool was utilized and somebody wanted to access that uh, Gmail account and the contents therein, um, under California law's version of Rufata, Google would look to, well, are there permissions in estate planning documents that specifically authorize this? Um, and if they're not, you know, then they're going to rely on their own terms of service agreements. But a UK resident who passed, who had a Gmail account that didn't use the online tool, and there is a need to get into that uh, account for a variety of reasons, if there's not specific authorizations in their estate planning documents, and even if there are, Google's still going to require a court order before they give access, you know, to that information. And if there is no specific authority granted, you know, uh, in estate planning documents, then Google will likely limit the information, even with the court order that's able to be provided to what's called a catalog of communication. So for that, it, an email wouldn't show the actual text, the body of the email, but it would show in this catalog the the person who was the recipient, the date, and the and the subject line uh, of the email message, but not the actual content. So even through a catalog, um, that could be telling or direct, you know, uh, an administrator of an estate to where digital assets or accounts, you know, could be listed. But of course, it's important to have that requisite authority in estate planning documents and to talk with professionals, you know, in, you know, someone's specific jurisdiction to make sure, you know, that that everything uh, is as it should be for for maximum access. So it seems as though the, the, the real answer is to inform everybody or educate everybody to consider these steps when they're creating these kinds of accounts. My question to you is, how do you go around telling someone or convincing somebody to go through all of their Google settings or Apple settings or whatever it may be and mitigate against all these risks for your for their loved ones to have to go through? Because people aren't going to sit and do that, are they? Is there a streamlined way to do it? Or just, it just seems like a very difficult sell for people to be proactive in their own estate planning when they quickly set up a Gmail account or a Instagram account or whatever. I mean, how do you do it? So the first step in any digital asset planning conversation really begins with creating awareness of those assets. And that's done through creating an inventory of digital assets and accounts, but should not include passwords to online accounts. Uh, as sharing passwords or impersonating a user is a violation of most terms of service agreements, as well as many specific jurisdictional laws. Um, to help, you know, with this process, the StepSig has created a comprehensive digital asset inventory, which is available on the the SIG's website, um, and that is the first step. The second step is to consult with a, a professional, you know, that's jurisdictionally uh, specific and versed in this area. Um, but at a higher level, you know, because I know it can be very overwhelming for people when they start unpacking how many digital assets and accounts that they really have yeah. um, to deal with it. I mean, it's difficult enough to get people to, to undergo the estate planning process. And then when you begin to layer on these additional uh, tasks or homework for them to do, you know, they, uh, the ball can get dropped pretty quickly. 
So I like to tell people to, you know, not get overwhelmed. You know, it is a process, but let's first think about what are the three most important digital assets or or interests? You know, is it a Gmail account? Is it uh, a cloud that has, you know, that manuscript you've been working on that someday you want to publish? Is it photos? Is it videos? And, you know, that is really personal, um, you know, to each person. There is many different types of digital behaviors that we're seeing. Um, so really also asking questions to help tease out how active somebody is online and, and how they are storing and managing their data or their household is going to help drive the conversation to the level of planning needed. So you mentioned password sharing a little bit earlier. And when I was reading this, this, this call to action paper, there were points specifically designed to deal with passwords. So what are the issues really in dealing with passwords for estate planning? Because they sort of are digital assets, but they're sort of not. And I know there's, as you said, there are issues around impersonation, but how should people treat them? So I think it needs to be thought of in kind of two different buckets. There's like a password to get into a phone, to access, you know, a computer or a device. And then there's passwords to get into online accounts that are controlled by service providers. And that's where the rubber really hits the road because passwords for online accounts that are controlled by service providers, um, you know, in, in most TOSA, uh, terms of service agreements that I've looked at, there's a prohibition on sharing passwords. So sharing them, you know, by default would then be a violation of the terms of service agreement. And many uh, countries and states also have their own jurisdictional rules about uh, impersonating users or having other types of online activities that sharing passwords to these types of online accounts would trigger that would be, uh, you know, unlawful. So when we talk about sharing passwords, I think it is important in the planning process that passwords to a computer or to a device, which under Rufada, uh, you know, an executor would be able to legally access, is different than passwords to a Gmail account or passwords to, you know, Yahoo or Venmo or another type of account controlled by a service provider, because they shouldn't be accessing those accounts, even if they had the username and password after somebody passed, uh, because that's a violation, you know, under terms of service agreements, it's a violation under Rufada and uh, other state laws in the U.S. that I've that I've mentioned. So there, there are other channels that need to to be uh, gone through to handle those types of digital assets. Because that's the tricky thing, right? I mean, and, unless I'm hearing this wrong, if I if I want to allow someone to consider or access digital assets via my third party, let's just say Google, if I share with them whilst I am alive my password to essentially keep for me until I die, and then they log in, that chosen person, the executor or whoever it may be, uses that password to access that would be in breach of the term. So you, if that is the case, you'd have to be extraordinarily careful as to what or at least how you provide that password to the chosen person. Well, well, yes. And I think there's also a risk that if you're breaching those terms of service agreements by unlawfully accessing somebody's account after they pass, you know, the ramifications of that uh, are not clear. Um, 
And because it's a violation, you know, as an attorney, I can't, you know, advise my clients to, to undergo those types of practices. Yeah, I understand. Um, just a little bit more on the, this call to action. There's a section that notes, it says, accessing digital assets after a loved one's death can pose a challenge. As digital assets become more prevalent and our lives become increasingly entwined with digital technologies, the need for effective solutions becomes more critical. These solutions require a joint response. Bodies such as STEP and other members need to engage with the governments and service providers globally in order to produce industry solutions and best practices that will help industries plan for their future with certainty and clarity. So on that basis, how imp well, certainly how impactful has this document and initiative been? So I think it's been very impactful. Um, you know, STEP clearly recognized the needs uh, to address the challenges in this space. And the report was really designed to raise public awareness uh, and what will happen, you know, to these types of uh, interests at an individual's death. And STEP undertook a YouGov public survey in the, both the UK and Canada. Mm -hmm. And this found that twice as many people placed importance on their sentimental digital assets like photos, videos, social media accounts, than other financial types of digital assets. And 57% you know, of uh, the people in the study made no plans for transferring or accessing you know, these assets. And only 3% uh, had used the digital legacy, you know, tools provided by Gap, uh, Google and, and others. I sort of remember, this is just anecdotally, but I remember I did an internship many years ago at Hearst magazine and I was given the opportunity. No, it wasn't Hearst. It was, uh, it was um, Fremantle, sorry. And I remember we did some work with Facebook and I remember sort of being very early 20s and thinking, reading this, this publication um, about how a load of Facebook users would at some point be dead and there'd be millions of dead accounts. And I thought to myself all those years ago, well, what happens to all these accounts? Will they sit there indefinitely? I mean, do you know the answer? I'm not, I'm not expecting you to know Facebook's policy, but by default, what has the position been that these accounts just sit there? So uh, Meta, formerly Facebook, they have uh, a digital legacy manager feature within their platform. And if a user utilizes that, they can preserve their, their page um, hey. and designate who can control their page, but there's some limitations there. Or they can designate that the page be, be deleted. And Facebook uh, had a lot of issues with people getting upset that a deceased user's birthday, you know, was getting reminded, you know, on their page or on their screen. And so Facebook worked hard to help kind of uh, eliminate this by freezing a page if they were getting notifications, you know, that, that somebody had passed um, until they could confirm this, this or not. And then also the creation of, of their tool to allow the memorial memorialization of, of a page. And do you have, or I haven't had to deal with this yet, I don't know whether you have, but dealing with uh, someone who's deceased, dealing with specifically their crypto assets or, 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 or something like Bitcoin, has there been any interaction with any of your clients with some of the big crypto exchanges? And if so, how have they dealt with it? Yes. So crypto poses a whole other level of complexity with digital assets because people can be, you know, their own bank and custody their own assets through, you know, digital wallets or hard wallets and having, you know, access to those uh, wallets or accounts, you know, 
is in and of itself a challenge. If somebody has their crypto on Coinbase, you know, you're going to see a little bit more of a, a similar traditional process to accessing those accounts as we do with other financial assets. Um, you know, there would be information sent, you know, to Coinbase, uh, the death certificate, the uh, legal representation, uh, you know, certificate of who's representing the estate, identification connecting, you know, the user's account, you know, with the deceased individual. And then, of course, you know, a will, if, if that's applicable to as to the provisions, you know, that that deal with those assets. So I think there's been a more streamlined approach for individuals who maintain their crypto with an institution like Coinbase than if they're self-custodying those assets. Yeah, if it's self-custody, it's going to be a nightmare because unless the seed phrase or the, the private keys put somewhere, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Um, in your experience, when you're dealing with these centralized entities that have uh, custody or control or even the deceased has an account with them, have you found them to be quite easy to deal with in circumstances whereby an executor is trying to realize the estate or has it been quite challenging? Certainly, let's take Coinbase, for example, if you've dealt with them. So I have not had issues when dealing with them. I have mm. heard uh, situations where there were uh, some delays or certain information wasn't able to be provided mm. that uh, slowed down you know, the process. Mm. And I've also had situations where we had to create, you know, uh, an account for the estate, uh, you know, to fund the the crypto into it. No, that makes process. That does make sense. Um, so, what's next for Step in the digital asset space? What is it that's on the cards next? So, um, you know, Step is currently reviewing next steps, which are likely to include working with service providers and continuing to help prepare practitioners to be ready to deal with these types of challenges and future ones as technology unfolds. And the Digital Asset SIG is continuing to work on educational materials and probably a new crop of videos uh, to help inform uh, these initiatives and efforts. And let's let's turn to you personally, but how did you get into the world of blockchain digital assets? So uh, years ago, a colleague of mine was ranting and raving about a client wanting to pay for legal services with Bitcoin. And this was way before it was mainstream. And it was the first time I ever heard uh, about it. And it really, you know, piqued my curiosity, uh, like, what is digital currency? And that then just led me down a very deep rabbit hole, uh, a digital rabbit hole um, to really explore, like, what else is digital? And, you know, we have email, we have music, this podcast, you know, these are all different types of digital assets and interests that need to be accounted for, you know, and we've been talking a lot about personal estate planning, but for small business owners, there's a huge component of planning for digital assets for a business. I guess from there, from that interest that was piqued, it was a matter of you just continuing down that rabbit hole and finding a, a, a sort of, I was going to say niche career path, but it's becoming increasingly ne less niche these days, I suppose. Yes. I, I mean, I'm still falling, you know, deeply down the digital hole. <laughs> I, I really get it. And tell me about your practice at Kleinbard broadly. So I'm the practice leader for the Trust and Estates Group at Kleinbard. I'm a partner. And, you know, in addition to digital asset planning, I do have a traditional estate planning practice and, you know, create wills and trusts mm. and do long-term gifting strategies for 
high net worth individuals. We also help with the state and trust administration. And um, I also am in the, the business and finance group at my firm. So I do a lot of work with closely held business owners, informing entities, selling entities. Hmm. And then I, I really marry my practices by doing business succession planning for closely held individuals too. And of course, over all of that is a, is a layer of digital asset planning and administration. But I was going to say, surely you're now one of the few specialists in your own practice field who deal with digital assets. Um, what trends then in, in, in this sort of space are you seeing? Because you live in these two worlds of digital assets and estate planning. What, yeah, I'm just going to repeat the question again. What, what, what trends are you seeing? So I'm seeing more advisors, you know, uh, ringing the alarm bells and raising awareness about the need for planning in this area, which is mm. great. I'm also seeing a lot of processes become much more automated. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, a trend that's going to continue. But, you know, I think the most buzzy may, uh, topic that's become more mainstream in, in this world is the use of generative AI. Um, and that's really coming to focus across industries over the last year. And it raises a host of risks, privacy issues, security concerns, copyright issues. Mm -hmm. um, and in the digital asset space, you know, I, I really see have seen that this is developing uh, the concept of postmortem privacy. And in many jurisdictions, there is no right to postmortem privacy unless you're a celebrity or a political or a public figure. Um, but now with the ability to make avatars and chatbots, you know, using generative AI um, that can incorporate someone's likeness and personality just off of some photos or some public information available online and maybe some pictures or some email communications, we have these chatbots that are being created. Um, I don't know if you've heard about these death chatbots that are being created to help a variety of situations, but some could argue that it helps a loved one mourn the loss of, you know, uh, an individual. But I think there's a host of ethical issues and concerns yeah, about creating this type of death chat bot or an avatar uh, of someone's likeness, especially if it's uh, after somebody has passed. So I think that is a really emerging trend and issue that, that we're going to continue to wrestle with for the foreseeable future. That is interesting and falls in line with some of the trends that we're seeing, I think, in London, especially amongst lawyers, because there has been a, a willingness for people who are self-proclaiming to be in blockchain, digital assets, whatever you want to call it, to then widen their practice into AI, which, of course, as you say, has its own issues predominantly relating to copyright. So... It seems as though there are similar trends across the pond and, and, and across um, uh, different practices as well. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about you because th there's just so many things that you do. You're an author of, or you are the author of even, uh, Digital Asset Entanglement, Unraveling the Intersection of Estate Laws and Technology. Um, I wonder whether in a nutshell you could tell us about that. Uh, so absolutely, I'm excited to talk to you about my book, which I did co-author with uh, the late and great Sharon Hartung. Um, the book really focuses on the ways technology has disrupted the traditional paper-based estate industry mm. and provides a practical framework for global advisors to follow. And what I really love about the book is we do this by 
using the fascinating story of the Canadian crypto exchange Quadriga CX and the estate of its late owner, Gerald Cotton. And for those unfamiliar with the story, uh, Gerald Cotton co-founded a crypto currency exchange called Quadriga CX in 2013, and it grew to one of the largest uh, exchanges in Canada. And he was running it from his laptop and he toured the world on exotic luxury vacations with Jennifer Robinson. And then he suddenly died in December of 2018 in India uh, while he was on his honeymoon with Jennifer. And at first, people thought that Jerry had died without any plans to run his company and access uh, the codes to unlock roughly $250 million in crypto client funds that was supposedly stored on his encrypted laptop. And the company went bankrupt and his wife raised in the state and she was named as a primary beneficiary under his will, uh, which he actually executed a few weeks before his passing. And various authorities in Canada and the US got involved in the investigation and ultimately uncovered that the 250 million that was supposedly held in client funds had actually been depleted months before the trip to India. And so the bankruptcy trustee and all the aggrieved parties, they ended up negotiating with Jennifer and you know worked out uh, her return of some of the assets that, that had been purchased with Quadriga funds um, to settle his estate. Um, but there's still a lot of speculation over whether you know he's still alive. And there was even a petition to exhume his body, but that was ultimately denied. Ooh, yeah. And there's a lot more to, to the story. Um, there's two documentaries that are uh, available about this. I recommend Dead Man Switch on Discovery by Shiona McDonald because she actually wrote the foreword to my book. But to kind of tie it back together, in the book, we use this case study to illustrate our framework and how advisors can plan for a myriad of clients in this area by breaking down digital behavior into personas and providing an initial framework for advisors to follow to investigate clients' digital assets and digital needs. And in the book, we created six personas from a basic user to a super user. And so a basic user, you know, this is somebody who maybe has one or two email accounts, maybe they have a social media profile, maybe do a little household bill pay online, but they're not running an online business. You know, they don't have a, a gig economy like a, an Etsy store. They don't have crypto. You know, they're not engaging in, you know, more complicated digital uh, interests and assets. And so by really inquiring about the activity of a person and their digital behaviors, this is how advisors can help tease out the level of planning that's needed. Um, the book was originally published in 2022 by LexisNexis Canada and was republished in July of this year by LexisNexis US. Uh, they're the same books. Uh, the Canadian version has a slightly cooler cover. And there is also a uh, Gen 15, which is a 15% off discount code. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, that's uh, Quadrigus, certainly a, an interesting story. Um, and if, if, if that is covered in the book, then that's certainly worth um, um, having a look at. Um, last thing I want to talk about, you also run a podcast. Um, that is probably why you are so smooth when you're talking. Um, tell us about it. It's the Digital Planning Podcast, right? Tell us a little bit about the who, the what's, the why's, the where's. Oh, yes. Well, well, thank you. So if you want to hear some more smooth stylings from Jennifer Zagel, definitely check it out. Um, I co-created and, and co-host the podcast with two other estate and trust attorneys. And we really discuss all things digital in connection with estate administration, estate planning, and business planning. And we started the podcast in 2019. 
And it's really for raising educational awareness about the need to plan in this area. And it's been really fun over the last few years to see people around the world slowly find their way to us. And most of the people that listen, you know, I think are practitioners or advisors in the space. Um, it can be listened to by the, the general public. We try to make it really digestible and, and the concepts easy to grasp. Uh, we've had some amazing guests on the podcast. We had Google come on to talk about their pre-planning tool. We've had Pamela Morgan, uh, who's a leader in the crypto planning space. We've had a Pennsylvania senator. We had the CEO of Two Oceans Trust, which is the first trust company in the United States and Wyoming to hold crypto assets in a trust, um, as well as other business leaders and academics. Sometimes we have roundtable discussions amongst the three of us on different types of topics like electronically signed wills or NFTs or the metaverse. Um, we did one on generative AI. Uh, and last month, uh, we dropped an episode on uh, cybersecurity awareness. So definitely check it out. We have uh, some great shows coming up and a, a great lineup for 2024. Well, when I when I publish this, um, I'll make sure that there are links within to to guide people towards um, both the book and the podcast. Oh, um, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for for speaking today. A wealth of knowledge, and really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Matt. It was a pleasure. This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins and music by Luke Carey. Thank you for listening and see you next time.